Okay. Parshas Bahar. Parshas Bahar is famously the Parsha of Shemitah. Okay, so this is page 696 in my Chamesh. Um, and in Parshas Bahar, it talks about Shemitah. It talks about a few mitzvahs, a few famous commandments. Um, one of them is Shemitah. The other ones are Yovel, which is the, the... I always get this mixed up. How do you say it in English? I wrote it down. The Jubilee here. Okay, I'm very proud of my English. Um, there is a commandment to, to not overcharge or underpay for something that you know has a certain value. So let's say you want to buy an object and its, it's value is 100, 100 bucks, $100. So to overcharge $20 or overcharge a sixth, that's not $20, that's, that's a fifth. Overcharge a sixth, which is whatever it is, 17 point, whatever it is. Overcharge a sixth. Or if you know the value is 100 bucks, to undercharge, to underpay, I mean. So if you know it's worth $100 and the guy is offering it significantly less than its actual worth because of a clear lack of knowledge, he doesn't know what it's worth. So you, you are responsible to tell him, I have to pay more than that. It's worth way more. Do you, do you know that's, there's a, it's a federal law here in America that if, um, let's say somebody has a garage sale and they got a violin, and the no. guy recognizes it is a very high value violin, but the guy doesn't know, and she sells it to him for twenty bucks, and it's worth ten thousand. The purchaser uh, has to return uh, the goods that they that they um, underpaid for. It. So the person who knows still can't win. Right? Can't can't. Can't take advantage of the person who does it. Okay, very good. That's a one. That's a good example of something that in the American judicial system um, plays out very nicely. No one gets um, cheated, or even by mistake. So that that is one of the commandments. Interestingly enough, in Jewish law, if it's within a sixth, it's okay. If it's exactly one sixth, um, the 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 buyer and the seller have an opportunity to, 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 to pay back the money, to reimburse the difference. And if it's above a sixth, he has the opportunity to renege on the whole deal. That's the way it works. Okay. Um, another thing, another mitzvah in this week's parasha, which is actually a very interesting mitzvah, it's not 100% clear if it's an actual mitzvah or not. The mitzvah is to prevent poverty. Okay? Now, what it entails... Is a very big discussion. Um, according, according to most commentaries, most postkim, this is where the commandment and the mitzvah to give tzedakah comes from. So there's, there's other examples of what it means to prevent poverty. So to offer someone a loan, not because he's poor, but because he's, let's say, about to suffer a bankruptcy or something. So to come in and offer him a loan so he doesn't have to go under, that is definitely part of the commandment. So he should, you should be, you should allow him to be able to stay on his feet, not let's say let him fall on his feet and then give him money for food for Shabbos, right? There's a commandment to come before. That's also what tzedakah comes from. I just want to go back one second. Is there not a, a mitzvah or prohibition against overcharging? 
Way over the value of something? Yes, yes. So, oh, so back to the, the, myth, the, the commandment of overcharging. So there's the same thing. I, as a seller, cannot overcharge more than a six. Because it happens, we see it all the time. Okay. Well, well that's... Oh. Right. Well, how we get around it and how, how it plays out, that's beyond the scope of a partial class. That's a, a monetary law discussion. And there's two parts. One is if I'm a, bu- a seller, I can't overcharge. And one is if I'm a buyer, I can't underpay. Okay, fine. And that's basically rounds out the Torah. There's a few, the parasha, I'm sorry, there are a few commandments that are, that are, that are repeated that we've mentioned many times before, talking about slaves and talking about idolatry and things like that. And those are just repeating, repeated over for various different reasons. Okay. So I would like to begin by asking a question. Okay. Today's day and age, we don't find um, open miracles so much, right? Unless, right? You have open miracles happen to you? Not usually. We don't usually find open miracles, right? If, if you had to think of one mitzvah, one special area in the Torah, or at least in our life as Jews, where we do see miracles, right? Anyone take a guess where that would be? The crossing of the Red Sea? That's many, 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 many years ago. What about in our generation, today's day and age? Right? The establishment of the state of Israel. Okay. Okay, these are all very, very nice things. I don't know if they're, they're miracles per se. They're all things that are beyond the, the, nat- the natural course of the world. But open miracles, not very common. Okay? There's one mitzvah that we see... Maybe perhaps we wouldn't call them open miracles, but very, very, very unique, um, unexplainable circumstances. And that is with regards to the mitzvah of Shemitah. The mitzvah of Shemitah, we have found even, I don't know about this year, I'm sure there's many, many stories, but maybe they're not famous yet. I'm sure everyone knows at this point of the year for sure, that this year does happen to be Shemitah. And in case anyone is interested, it could be everyone here did. But when I was in Lakewood in the beginning of the year, they had people standing around, and you could actually sign a contract to buy a piece of land or to lease a piece of land in Israel, like four cubits by four cubits, and then you own it, so to speak, for the year, and you could get a mitzvah of the mitzvah of Shemitah. We can't get the mitzvah of Shemitah in St. Louis, right? You could have a sabbatical on, the, on your farm in, in, in Illinois or in, in, in Missouri. It's not going to give you any mitzvah, right? But in Israel, it's a mitzvah. So what happens? We don't own, you can't go buy a farm. Who's going to take care of it for you? So in Shemitah, they have tons of organizations. You could buy or lease a piece of land. And besides for the fact that you're going to give money, the money that you pay goes directly to support a Jewish farmer, an Israeli farmer, which in itself is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But you can actually get the mitzvah of owning a piece of land and not working on it on Shemitah, which is a beautiful thing. Okay, I'm sure you can still do it now in case you want. Not so expensive. But I'm not a sal- I'm, not, I'm not a Shemitah salesman. But I'm just I'm just saying it's a beautiful thing. Anyways, so the 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 there are so many stories and events that highlight the importance and the beauty of Shemitah and how Shemitah clearly is very dear to Hashem. Well, how do we know it's very dear to Hashem? Well, if you 
maneuvers things around to help the Shemitah farmers, then we can see that Hashem clearly is happy and likes the fact that they're keeping Shemitah, right? And there's so many stories, I just want to share with you a few stories of, of, of Shemitah stories. I call them Shemitah stories. So there's a famous um, um, religious Moshav called Moshav Matisyahu. I'm sorry, Moshav Komimias, I think it's called. Moshav Komimias. And there was this, there was this um, big rabbi, and his name was Rabbi Mendelssohn, and he was the Rav of this Moshav. And they were farmers, and they were religious, religious farmers. And these religious farmers um, really wanted to keep Shemitah. But it was very difficult. Okay? And I believe the year was 1966, somewhere around that time, that Shemitah year. And many, many, many farmers in that era did not keep Shemitah. Right? Most farmers were religious. It, was very, the, the, it wasn't a common thing. The awareness of Shemitah laws was definitely not as, as um, prevalent as it is nowadays. And nowadays when you drive down the highways in Israel, Shemitah, I was there last Shemitah, all these farmers that keep Shemitahs, they take a lot of pride in it. Big signs, Kan Shavim Shemitah, right? Big signs, we, we're keeping Shemitah. We're, we're, right? we're, we're keeping Shemitah. We're keeping the laws of Shemitah. And uh, that, that year, in, I believe it was 1966, there was a crazy um, locust infestation. And these locusts were all over the Middle East. And they were decimating in, 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 in Egypt and in Jordan and all the areas surrounding Israel. They were totally destroying all the crops. And the way it works on Shemitah is that you're not on a plant, but some of the trees grow and things come by themselves. And there is a limit of certain amount, a limited amount of fruits and vegetables that actually grow. Okay? And these farmers were all, right, they're all uh, crying out to Hashem. That even our small little amounts are going to get decimated by these incredible plague of locusts. They were coming and devouring all the crops. And one day, as the locusts come closer and closer and closer, and they're literally, it's like a black, gray cloud, they're swarming down on the fields. And literally, the fields are all green. The locusts come down, they hang around there for like a day or two, and come up, there's only branches. No leaves, nothing. Empty. And miraculously and mysteriously, no one knows, I mean, we know now, their, their fields, the fields of Moshav Komimias, were not touched by the locusts. They went around and devoured all the surrounding fields, and their fields were completely skipped and not touched. And this is a fascinating miracle. This is, this is an amazing, amazing thing that we see even in, in our times, right? I mean, it's not... In my times, but right, I wasn't alive in 1966. But say we, this is this is this is a recent history, right? You should say that softly. <laughs> well, I can be many of your grandchildren. So, okay, fine, fine. So that's one story. Okay, another story I would like to share is much more recent. This happened last Shemitah. Okay, so one of the the Shemitah. The ways to, I guess, I wouldn't say circumvent Shemitah. One of the ways to, to, to get around part of the Shemitah laws is that, let's say normally the harvests are around October time in Israel, and that's like already past the Shemitah year. So the Shemitah year starts in Rosh Hashanah, and that's already past. So what do they do? They harvest the, 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 these 
fields two months early. So the crops are 100% ripe, but they harvest them prior, so in July, August, they already harvest the fields. So although it's not a perfect crop, but at least they, they get the crop for the year. Okay? So there was this field, and this is, they have this on video, so this is very recent. This is last Shemitah, so this is seven years ago. Okay? I was in, I was in Israel at the time, and there was, there, was this, there was this, it still exists nowadays, but there were there, and it was a very, very big thing that these Arab terrorists were building these tunnels under the, the border wall of Gaza, right? And apparently, they had this crazy long tunnel system, and it was going to pop up in this middle of this big wheat field, okay? So you have this wheat field that was like three, four feet tall, right? Looked like the same. Imagine like the cornfields over here, right? And anyway, now this video from I don't know if it was a, a, a search tower or a security tower. All of a sudden, you see a completely barren, raised field, completely like like literally like 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 shorter than grass, like completely barren. And all of a sudden, there's like five terrorists like climb out from like the middle of, middle of nowhere, pop out, <laughs> totally bewildered. And they're like, climb out, and then like, they run back into the thing, and the security catches them. And what happened was, they were planning a terrorist attack on that community, and they, were, they had a clear cover, because they had three, four feet of, of, of stocks that were not supposed to be harvested for another month. And they completely were banking on that, and they, who knows what they, what they would have done, right? And they would have... You don't want to think about what they could have done. And they totally made it all the way through, right? And didn't get stopped. And what saved this community? What saved this Jewish community from this terrible tragedy? The fact that their field was harvested a month earlier because of Shemitah completely saved countless lives. Right? We see it, the, the power of Shemitah, how beautiful Shemitah is. Okay. So that is it. Let us discuss a very interesting series of psukim, a series of verses in Shemitah. So in the parish of Shemitah, in the parish of Shemitah, it says like this. Pasuk. So it's right before Shlishi, page, page 700, right on top. Page 700, right on top, verse 19, your test, it says like this. V'nasna ha'aretz, period, the land will give its fruit. And you will eat your fill. So you will be very satiated and satisfied. You will dwell securely upon it. V'chi soimu manaycha. This is this next verse. And if you ask, what will we eat? What will we eat? Bashana Shvias in the seventh year. We didn't plant, didn't harvest. What are we gonna eat? We will not sow nor gather in our crops. How are we gonna eat? We don't have any food to eat. We didn't plant anything, we didn't we didn't harvest anything. Vitsivisi Hashem says, Vitsivisi as bih barchasilachem. I will ordain my blessing on you on the sixth year and it will yield crops sufficient for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. Three years worth of crops. Okay? 
That's the, those are the three psukim. The first pasuk says, the land will give its fruit, and you will eat your fill. You'll be good, and you will dwell securely upon it. And you will have security, you don't have to worry about it. And if you will ask and wonder, what am I going to eat? Hashem says, I will give you three years worth of crops. Okay? Two questions. First of all, why is there like two blessings here? It seems like there's two distinct blessings. The first blessing is, the land will give its fruit, and you'll eat your fill, and you'll have security, life's good. And then, in the third Pasek, it says that we will give you three worth, three years worth of crops. Right? It seems like there's two distinct um, um, blessings here. The second question, which is more perplexing, is If you ask, what will I eat? Why is that a precursor to the blessing of the three years worth of crops? Why do we have to question God in order to get this? Isn't the fact that we're keeping the laws of Shemitah enough to get the blessing? What do you mean? And if you ask, what will I eat? Oh, that will unlock the gates of, 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 of the Torah. Right? That seems very, very strange, right? Why do we need to ask what are we going to eat? Why do we need a question in order to get the blessing? Okay? Good questions. I think those are very clear, s- simple questions that, that jump out at you. So the Sifurna, which is one of the commentators on the Chavesh, early, early commentators, the Sifurna, he points this out, and he says a fascinating thought, which he says with regards to the laws of Shemitah, the laws of the sabbatical, but we can take that lesson for life. And he says as follows. There's two types, and the Chafetz Chaim actually, I'll go back and explain this according to the way the Chafetz Chaim understands this concept. So the Chafetz Chaim explains a beautiful difference. I mean, this is the title of the, of the class actually, which is as follows. There's three um, ways that Hashem, so to speak, that God um, gives off His blessings, I guess, gives off sustenance to this world. The first way is called Teva, which is basically nature, the natural way of things, right? Look outside, trees grow, it's natural, that's the way God, right? In the deeper dimension of life, that itself is a miracle. If you think deeply in it, you have a little seed and you put it in the ground. Tree is not a big seed. Tree is not anything to do with the seed, right? And if you go and go through all the motions, all the steps, it's one of the most beautiful, amazing things, right? How you can take an apple off a tree and you can imagine that this apple used to be a little seed. And cut it open and you'll find a dozen seeds. And you can do the same thing again, right? It's a miracle. But we call it Teva. We're used to it. It's part of the natural way of the world. Then there's what we would call miracles. In the Torah version of what a miracle is, is something that is completely out of the realm of reality, out of the realm of the natural sense, right? Splitting of the Red Sea. That's a miracle, right? Moses, Moshe took his staff, right? And he told the seed to split, poof, split, right? Completely non-natural, right? Manna manna falling from the heaven, fruit, completely not natural. This is a miracle, okay? And then there's a level in between. And this is called 
bracha, blessings, where God gives us extra blessings, which means that things that the natural occurrences happen in a very limited way, it can add on extra, okay? And there's many, many different um, parameters, many different um, specific criteria that blessings um, um, come on onto. For example, there's, there's something the Gemara tells us, the Talmud tells us that, that blessings only um, um, rest. In the Shura, it literally means rests on something that is hidden from the eye. Right? When things are out of the open, blessings don't, don't that, that, that's nature. When things are keep, kept private, kept sanua, kept private, and kept under wraps, then much abundance and blessing can, can come. That's why a lot of people keep their, their, a lot of things, they try to keep them private. Right? Finances and things like that. If someone's having success in business, right, they don't, if you don't, you, you, we, um, we religious Jews, we don't flaunt our wealth, we try not to flaunt our wealth, then usually um, the, the opposite would be called an ayin hara, Evil, the evil eye, right? Evil eye usually latches on to people who are very busy showing off their their bracha, right? When we have uh, many beautiful um, nachas, beautiful nachas of our children, we don't go around showing everyone off to each other. These are things we, we we can be proud of our children and 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 enjoy them. But a lot of them, we try to to, to keep things under wraps. Okay, because the more we keep things under wraps, the more blessings can befall on them. Okay, that is what blessing is. That's what blessings are. Okay, so now let's let's. Uh, so the Chafetz Chaim tells us that in between what we would call nace, which is miracle, open miracle, and teva, which is natural order, there's something called blessings, and the blessing is the ability for things to grow. It says in the Gemara, actually, one more thought, that when you count your tevua, when you count your grain, right, you should say to Hashem, you should make a, you say a prayer. Hirachan should, um, let's see if I remember my heart, Hirachan should, Shet Tishrei, Hirachan Mofanecha Shet Tishrei, Shechinasa B'Masayadinu, that Hashem's um, presence shall be with my handiwork, with my work. Right? So you're basically asking Hashem for a blessing. That He should bless your, your tfua, your, your grains. And today's day and age, most of us aren't farmers. So you bless your, your business or your, whatever you're doing with abundance. Okay? So back to the Chavetz Chaim. So there's nice Teva, miracles, natural order. And in between, there's something called Baracha, blessing. Okay? Now let's go back to the Shemitah. So there's two levels here. The first level is someone... Who has a, who has bitachon? He has he believes that he could keep shmita. Torah tells if you keep shmita, the land will give its full fruit. And you will enjoy and eat your fill, and don't have to worry about it. That's person number one. His crops on the sixth year will grow perfectly, sink exactly the same as any other year. He won't have the blessing of the threefold. Three times. Because he doesn't need it. Why? Because the Torah says that he will be satisfied. He will eat less. It will grow in his stomach. It will be a miracle perhaps. But he won't need any more fruits. He won't need any more tefillah. He won't need... He won't need... He will have 
half a sandwich for lunch, and that will be enough for him. He won't need the three sandwiches. He won't be starving. Then he will have whatever he needs. That's the first blessing. Then the Torah breaks out, separates. And if you don't have emuna and mitachon, and if you ask, what will we eat? If you ask, what will I eat all these years? I'm not going to have any fruit. He doesn't have the mitachon. He still gets the blessings because he keeps the laws of, the Shri, of Shemitah, keeps the Sabbath of the law. So he, he, he gets, he deserves the blessing. Okay, he gets the blessing, but he gets a different type of blessing. His blessing is he gets three times the amount of Tua. Why is it different? This is not a miracle anymore. This is blessing. Right? Instead of the stocks going this high, they go this high. Right? It's not the natural order of things, but I'm saying, right? It's possible, right? It just grows extra and he has an abundance, right? The, the difficulty with this is he will have to work triple as hard. He has to harvest three times the amount of tua. He will have to store somehow, somewhere, three times the amount of grain. Okay? Etc., etc., etc. So the, the blessings will end up, he will end up in the same place. He will have enough food to eat. He will have enough food to eat. They both will have whatever they need. He will have whatever he needs by having less. He will have whatever he needs by getting three times the amount. Okay? Now, let's try to use that concept, use that answer, use that thought, and move that out into our life. So our life, we have the same thing, right? We, uh, we believe, whether we believe it as a 100% guarantee, or we know it to be true, but one thing for sure, we know it to be true, that God provides for us, and God, has to, God will give us whatever we need. Okay? The problems arise, obviously, when there are moments in time, months of time for some people, it shouldn't be any of us, of course, where, where people suffer and they don't have enough to eat, etc. Right? And it's difficult, right? And some people believe that they need to do extraordinary, ex, ex, extraordinary amount of effort and work in order to, to, to sustain themselves, right? And some people live off very little, right? And we all know someone or somewhere or, or heard stories of people who let's say live in Mesh Arm in Israel, Benebrak, or even maybe over here, and they devote their entire lives to, to, to learning Torah or, or to, to we, and we call it Klei Kodesh, which is um, being a Rebbe or, or a Sofer or someone like that, and they live off very little. And they, they're very happy. They have, they're very happy. And they don't have fancy cars, they don't have houses, they live in a very small apartment, but they're happy. And somehow, somewhat, we don't know how, we don't know why, but somehow, somewhat, they all, they all make it. Right? They all make it. Now, sometimes, sometimes people need charity. It's our duty to give people charity, of course. But the reality is, which is sometimes very hard for us to, to internalize, is the Hashem, God, genuinely and unequivocally is, has the ability and does sustain every single person in this world. And that is the reality. The reality is that Hashem is, has the ability and He does sustain everyone. And we, if we would be on the level, 
to internalize that and to believe that with a full heart, then then we can't theoretically we can't theoretically live a life when we believe that Hashem will take care of us no matter what. Okay? Now obviously there can't be a vacuum, right? If I claim that I believe Hashem takes care of me, and then I go sit on the street corner and I say, Hashem's gonna take care of me, I don't need to get a job. Right? And I don't believe it, then that's that's somewhere between foolish and stupid, right? That's just stupid, right? But there are people that genuinely believe it, right? I'll just share with you a story to bring out the point, okay? There's a famous, the, the famous the f- grandfather, the father of the Muslim movement, his name was Yisrael Salander. Yisrael from the city of Salam. And one of his big themes was this exact theme. He used to tell people, if you have the bitachon, if you have the genuine belief that Hashem can take care of you, anything could happen. And one of his talmidim, who was very, very poor, decided, my rabbi said, that anything can happen. He's going to buy a lottery ticket. And he asked his rabbi, if I buy a lottery ticket and I genuinely believe with complete faith that Hashem will make me win the lottery, will it happen? And Rabbi Yisrael Salando said, of course. If you genuinely believe that it will happen, it will happen. So this guy went and he bought a lottery ticket and I'm sure the story didn't happen exactly like this because his student was also a big holy rabbi and I'm going to make him sound a little bit like not a holy rabbi. So Bob just tried to bring out the point. And he bought a ticket. Let's just make it up. One million dollar sweepstakes. Okay? Okay? Meanwhile, someone comes over to him and says, I heard you have the winning ticket to the lottery. Right? You have the winning ticket, right? Everyone knows, everyone heard. And he says, yep, it's true, winning ticket. So the guy said, listen, I'm a poor guy. But I raised money from all my friends. Million dollar ticket, I'll pay $10,000 for it. On the spot, up front. She says, no, 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 $10,000, that's the winning ticket. So the guy says, okay, fine, I'll pay you $50,000 for the winning ticket. $50,000, it's a winning ticket. But you know, $50,000 goes a long way, right? Support my family for a year or two, right? And he says, No, I'm not gonna do it. $100,000. No, I'm not gonna do it. $500,000. $500,000. It could support my family for many, many years. I could learn Torah uninterrupted. Ah, man, might not be a winning ticket. Who knows? It's money up front. And he says, Fine, I'll do it for $500,000. So the guy tells him, really, I never wanted to buy your ticket. Your Rebbe, Rebbe Yisrael Salanter, sent me to you to buy the ticket off of you to see if you genuinely have true faith. If you had true faith that you were going to win the ticket, you wouldn't have sold it for $999,999 for a penny less. Why would you sell it? It's the same thing. That, that is called true faith. Okay? So obviously, we're not holding there. We don't have true faith. We don't believe I mean, I don't, we don't believe with that level of certainty. So therefore, we can't do that. We can't do that. There's no one that can do that. So I'm not telling you to do that. And of course, I'm, right, I, don't, I can't do that. But what I'm saying is, that is some sort of ultimate level where we can dream about. And then we can take it wherever we can go with it. Right? So how much would we sell a ticket for? Right? Is the dollar, would we sell it for one dollar? If you believe that that was the winning ticket, we believe that Hashem could sustain us. Would we sell it for $1? $1 we wouldn't sell it for, right? 
$100, we wouldn't tell him for, right? So he, this guy, this guy took him $500,000, right? There is a certain level where we're holding by, right? It's not $1, right? We're not that low. It's not $500,000. We're not that high. But it's somewhere in between. And we always have to remember and realize that the more that we believe in Hashem, the less we would theoretically have to do. And the less we believe in Hashem, the more we have to do. And it's a scale, right? We can't have a vacuum, but we always have to remember that the reason why we have to do, the reason why we have to work, and the reason we have to do our hishtadlus, put in the effort, hishtadlus is like the effort, the reason why we have to put in the effort is in order to make up the difference between that lack of mitachem. As long as we put it in perspective, Right? Of course, we're not holding on the ultimate level of faith. But as long as we put in perspective of the scale of where we're holding, that is the lesson that we could take out of Shemitah. Okay?